Since July 8, 2004, I've been in recovery from drug addiction. Since that day, it's been my mission to understand all I can about the disease which kills so many people and destroys so many lives. Almost everything we know about addiction is wrong. During our podcast, I will reference my favorite books, articles, and stories to help you better understand this complex problem. My name is Stephen Lloyd. Welcome to 70 Times 7. Welcome back. Hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Uh, we took a little bit of a break ourselves. We're going to come back and we're going to jump right into this thing. We started this whole season with your story. We kind of talked about where you came from, kind of just your background, how you got interested in this. And then from that transition, we talked about the United States struggle with the opioid crisis and the measures that they took to get to where we are today and, and in a little bit of trouble. So now in order to, to personalize all this, rather than talking about our problem as a nation, let's get down into what actually is addiction. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and Heath, you know, I'm going to I'm going to tell you about it, but just do a little bit of a, a backstory going in, you know, coming through medical school and residency, you would think that we would get a lot of training in this. Uh, uh, I still submit that addiction is the number one health problem in the United States. But if you look at all the training, uh, you know, I'll ask you this. Uh, how, many, how much training do you think that I got in medical school and residency on uh, addiction and addiction as a disease? Uh, just based off what I've heard you talk about, uh, you talk about it as not a moral failure. So that means that it's probably been defined as such. So my guess is not too much, uh, not too much education on that. Yeah. We got zero hours, you know, and, and, uh, you know, if you think about all the times, you know, that we spent in the classroom and books, zero hours doesn't seem like a, you know, a representative example of, of what we needed, you know, in education wise to, to deal with the, you know, the current problem that we have. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, how many hours do you think we got on the recognition of addiction and, and the proper referral to the appropriate level of care for addiction. Probably zero as well, if I yeah. guess. Yeah, you're, and your guess would be correct. Uh, so, you know, again, a zero hours. Now, there, there's some caveats to that. If you happen to have a psychiatry professor that, you know, that had an interest in addiction, you got a little bit more of an experience and probably got a little bit better handle. But for the most part, our education systems within with our education system within medical education, be it uh, physicians, nurses, uh, nurse practitioners or physicians assistants is woefully inadequate when it comes to addiction. So I'm trained as an internist. I work as a hospitalist. I've taught in the university set. Uh, I've been a chief of medicine, a chief of education in, in the VA system. Uh, but my interest in addiction medicine, uh, you know, has, has really been where my career has gone for the last 10 years and I'm self-taught. So I'd like to start this uh, episode with giving, you know, giving our listeners uh, some resources. And we'll go ahead and have Sterling put the links to these uh, books or at least pictures and links to these books up on our website and our Facebook page. But I'm self-taught and, and, and I really taught myself based on current literature uh, from the uh, uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine. And then a lot of things are out in the mainstream right now and they're really quality. So I just want to run down a quick list of things that I recommend. The first one is Unbroken Brain uh, by Mia Salovich. Uh, and I'll be referencing uh, these books uh, all throughout the coming episodes. Uh, the next book is uh, Biology of Desire by uh, Dr. Mark Lewis. Uh, Dope Sick by Beth Macy. Uh, American Pain by John Temple. 
Painkiller uh, by Barry Mayer. This is one of the early books uh, on the on the opioid crisis in Appalachia, and, and it's often overlooked, but it is a quality work. And, and uh, Barry Mayer uh, is an excellent writer. Ahead of his time, for sure. Well, I think he was on the front edge of this. Right. Um, uh, you know, and what I consider to be really the gold standard with understanding addiction, at least, is is the book Clean by David Sheff. And there's actually a, a movie uh, uh, that's going to be about the life of David Sheff and his son, Nick, who had a methamphetamine addiction called Beautiful Boy. And uh, it'll be out in theaters uh, coming soon. It's a feature film. And I think Steve Carell is is one of the main actors. Uh, we've already referenced Chasing the Scream uh, by Johan Hari. And then the, the latest book I'd like to add to this is uh, a, a book that was released in 2018 called The Recovering uh, by Leslie Jamison. So these are the books that I, I recommend if you, you know, if you have any interest in, in what we're talking about going forward. They're very well done. Uh, there's some podcasts that these folks are on as well if you look at the authors, but I'll be referencing these from time to time. But I think we need to start out with, you know, what is addiction? And addiction is, is pretty simply defined as the continued use of something and that something could be anything. It could be a chemical such as, uh, you know, opioids, pain pills, alcohol, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, or or a process, and that process could be uh, a sex, uh, internet pornography, gambling. So addiction is simply the use uh, of of something uh, despite consequences. So if you have the continued use of of alcohol despite consequences, then you have alcoholism. You know, and, and we always try to define it as number of drinks per week or number of pain pills taken per day or whether or not you're, you know, you're, you're physiologically uh, dependent. And none of that stuff matters, Heath. When I'm listening to a history from a patient, what I want to know is do you have continued use despite consequences? So... I'll tell you a question. It was on my uh, internal medicine boards. Uh, this has nothing to do. This is just my straight up internal medicine boards when I was uh, finishing residency. It said, which of the following uh, would be most predictive of chronic alcoholism? Uh, would it be A, elevated liver enzymes, B, jaundice, C, uh, ascites, or D, the second DUI? So what do you think the answer to that question is? Well, I don't know what jaundice is. Um, <laughs> I, you know, they, they say if you don't know the answer, just to put C. So I'm going to go ahead and say C. It sounds ascites, whatever that yeah, is. Ascites. So that's fluid on the on the belly from from liver failure, which could be, you know, could, could be secondary to alcohol. But in this case, that advice about choosing C would be wrong. Uh, the answer here is the second DUI. So if you if you go back to the definition of addiction, which is the continued use of something uh, despite consequences, it becomes obvious. So let's talk about DUIs a little bit. If you get a DUI right now, it could be an accident. And I'm not condoning drinking and driving at all. It's never okay. But but you could be a woman that, that you know that doesn't metabolize alcohol very very well and had you know not enough to eat at dinner and and drank too much wine and and you get pulled over going home. It happens. I mean, I'm, I'm but every person that gets pulled over for the first DUI is not an alcoholic for sure. Now, uh, you know, we, we won't get into that argument about how many times you drove drunk before you got caught. I'll leave that one over to the side. But if you want to know the average first time is actually 300. But at any rate, so, so that first DUI could have been an accident. What about the second DUI? Well, that's not an accident. Remember, addiction is the continued use, in this case of alcohol, despite consequences. Now, what happened with that first DUI? In every state in the United States, you spent 48 hours in jail. Every single one. Uh, ne- next, it cost you 10 grand for an attorney to get you out of it. And last but not least, I don't know if other states are like uh, Northeast Tennessee where you and I live, uh, but we take your picture and we publicly shame you by putting it in something called the busted paper and we sell it at the mini mart for a dollar. Those are significant consequences. That first DUI may have been an accident. 
that second DUI is a, is a, is a problem. And you have chronic alcohol misuse at that point and more than likely alcohol addiction. And Heath, I get these guys and, and women coming into me all the time. And we, you know, we, we talk about, and, and a lot of times I'm, I know I'm talking about alcohol, but you can substitute anything in here, opioids, uh, pain pills, heroin, it doesn't matter, but I'm going to talk about alcohol right now. And, and they'll come in and they'll say, well, you know, I don't, I don't drink uh, during the day. Or I only drink liquor, I don't drink wine, or only drink wine, I don't drink beer, or only drink beer, but I don't drink liquor. I mean, you know, they always want to tell you what they drink and how little of it they drink, and then give you these parameters of which they do drink. So I don't keep it in the house, uh, uh, I don't drink and drive, I don't drink at work, uh, you know, and, and it's all of these things. And so, okay, and I listen to them, and that's fine. Uh, and I say, okay, uh, tell me how your life's going. Where, where's your wife? Oh, she left me. Well, why'd she leave you? Well, she, you know, she said alcohol was getting in the way and she didn't like how I acted when I drank. Okay. What about your kids? Well, they haven't spoken to me in two years. Well, why haven't they spoken to you in two years? Well, you know, they don't like how I act when I'm on alcohol and how I treat their mom and they got mad at some things that I did. And so, so I ask you right now, Heath, does that guy have addiction by definition? Absolutely. How come? Because yeah, he's continued use despite adverse consequences. And it's exactly that easy. Mm-hmm. You have absolutely no medical training other than hanging around me, and you can diagnose addiction. When we get these folks coming into jail all the time with repeat drug offenses when they're using, be it pain pills, heroin, methamphetamine, it doesn't matter. It's easy to make the diagnosis. I don't need a 35-question, you know, mini Minnesota uh, psychological evaluation, right? I just need to know, do you have continued use despite consequences? So for our listeners out there who have family members that that you think may be struggling with addiction. You think, you know, are they addicted? Are they not addicted? It doesn't matter whether or not they get sick when they stop taking the drug. That is simply physiologic dependence. And that'll happen to anybody uh, given the right drug for the right amount of time. What really matters is that continued use despite consequences. So look at their life. Do they continue to use drugs despite consequences? If they do, Heath, that's addiction. And that's as pure and simple as I can make it. I like that. So I actually, I've heard you talk a few times, obviously. I mean, you're my dad. I've been around and I've seen some of your talks. And and in one of them, you outlined in in one of your slides, dependence versus addiction. And you have everything written in black, except for the last thing on addiction. It says, despite adverse consequences. So those of you listening, again, to reiterate, addiction is when it's continued use, despite adverse consequences. Dependence happens physiologically. That does not mean you're an addict. First things first, we like the education. So let's move on from that. Let's move on from that. So you you talked about, you kind of gave us a background into what you see addiction as clearly defined. Now, I, I have a little bit of a psych background. So we kind of talk about the biopsychosocial model of behavior in psychology. And that's with everything growing up. You know, what what factors um, contribute to how you act? You know, and and you kind of, when we were talking about this before, you kind of mentioned this as as a, a principle that's in addiction as well. So explain that a little bit to me. Well, you know, Heath, unlike you, I don't have a psychology background <laughs> and, and coming through med school and, and residency, I was, I was probably philosophically opposed to all things, psychology and psychiatry. Uh, when I looked at the list of things I wanted to do for a living in medicine, psychiatry and psychology was at the very bottom of it. So I think it's kind of ironic that I do what I do now, but when I hear the word biopsychosocial model, my knee jerk reaction is psychobabble. Okay. Uh, it's, oh, you know, I, I actually vomit a little bit in the back of my throat. You know, when I hear these, you know, these psychology terms, because they're always long and convoluted and I don't understand them. And I don't think most people do, but the biopsychosocial model is, is really relevant when we talk about diseases and really any disease, because we can make this argument with diabetes, hypertension, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. There is no disease that I can think of that is purely 100% genetics. There may be a few of them out there, but, but there's very few that are, that are 100% genetic. Most diseases, 
genes have a genetic component, so you have a predisposition to developing it. And then some kind of environmental or social factor comes into play. And under that set of circumstances, the disease manifests itself. And that's really for anything. And it's particularly true for addiction. So let's take a look at the biopsychosocial model. Uh, I don't get it, man. I, I don't. I don't understand the terminology. But what I do get is I do get a slot machine. Okay. Uh, I get a slot machine and I understand how a slot machine works. So uh, those of you out there, you know, you've got a picture of a slot machine in your head. I'm not talking about the fancy Vegas slot machines with 75,000 icons and bitmojis on it. I'm talking about your standard seven slot machine. When the three sevens all hit on the pay line after they've done spinning, that's when the money comes out of the bottom. So I like to use a slot machine as I talk about the biopsychosocial model. And as a matter of fact, the next three episodes following this episode, we're going to break down each of the three sevens in detail. And I'm going to weave in some historical background information and then some story, points from my story uh, to help people understand uh, the biopsychosocial model. So the first part, the bio part, if we break that down, bio is simply a biology. It's genetics. And we know that about 60% uh, of addiction is genetics. Uh, we know plenty of people and there's plenty of examples out there of, of people that come out of homes where the mom and dad uh, both have addictive disease. Yet the the child grows up and there's has a problem with it. Does that mean it's not genetic? Absolutely not. It just means that 60% component was, uh, was, was there, but for whatever reason, the disease didn't manifest its wealth because, uh, because uh, other things uh, may or may not have been present, such as uh, abuse or such as, you know, some of the social determinants of health, which we'll talk about later. So the biology part is purely genetic. So if I've got you sitting in front of me and I'm trying to ascertain whether or not you're at risk for developing addiction, Heath, what I want to know from you, I'll ask you simply this question. You can answer. Heath, uh, tell me, has anybody in your family ever suffered from addictive disease? Quite a few. Absolutely. Can you tell me about a couple of them? Uh, one of them's my dad. Uh, let's see, a couple other ones we won't mention on air, but there's some distant relatives, but they've all kind of struggled with it again, despite adverse consequences. Right. So, so you, so in, in your case, you would have a positive family history of addictive disease, right? And so, you know, me being your father, you would be at risk. Uh, your, your mother, Karen, uh, it does not have addictive disease. So you got that part of it uh, from me. And, and so, so right off the bat, you you have that first seven on the pay line. And if you'll remember when you and Haley were growing up, this is one of the things I used to try to teach you when it came to, you know, experimenting with substances. You have a genetic predisposition. Half of your DNA is mine. And one of the things that I've learned is I've tried to help people, you know, through the years with addiction is, is that you can't ask them about their own personal drug use. You know, when they get to a certain point, they can and they'll, they'll open up. But if you're trying to dig in there in denial, they're, they're not going to tell you the truth about themselves. The most number of beers I've ever heard anybody admit to is two. Hmm. I've had people come in with a blood alcohol of 340 and I say, how many did you have? And they said two. And I went, they must've been really big. You know, people won't tell you about themselves, but when you ask them about their family, they'll talk for hours. They'll tell you about all generations. So just in my interactions with you, I know that you have a positive family history. So when I see that positive family history, the first seven comes down on the pay line. Okay. Now the second part of the uh, biopsychosocial model is the psycho part. And that's kind of the environment that we're raised in. And so, and, and when I get into this one, you know, everybody always raises an eyebrow. This is not about blaming mom and dad. It's not about blaming your family. It's about helping our patients, helping you understand how you got where you are. Because for me, when I was going through this, as I learned more and more and more about addiction, I realized that I had something treatable that was wrong with me. And I was not this immoral piece of crap. And there was actually hope for me. So it actually lifted the burden off of me a little bit and allowed me to accept who I am, accept from responsibility 
respons- some responsibility for my actions and my medical condition so that I could do something about it. So that's why I like to explain this in this manner. So the psycho part is the, is the psychology. What kind of environment were you raised in? Nobody that I know of. And if they're, if they're out there, it's a darn small group comes out of what we would consider a normal household. Every family has problems. Every family has issues. So I'm not talking about those issues. I'm talking about abuse and trauma. And when I talk about trauma, I'm talking about physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. And I get people all the time that says, well, you know, Dr. Lloyd, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any physical abuse. I didn't have any sexual abuse. Uh, but the real big problem for them is emotional abuse and emotional abuse co- becomes in many forms. And, I, and sometimes I like to try to explain to people that in some ways, emotional abuse is the worst of the three. Because if you think about it, if you're being physically abused or sexually abused, there's an end point to that. I'm not minimizing it at all, but there's an end point for each episode, right? It may be ongoing, but there's a time where the episode is over. Emotional abuse, I kind of think of it like chronic traumatic encephalopathy in football players. It's not the big hit going across the middle that gets you. It's the repeated little hits at the line of scrimmage that get you. And so that's what I think of emotional abuse uh, as like. And and that's just a chronic abuse every day. And the, the examples I see for the most part are kids that come out of families where uh, there was a divorce early on. Uh, the, the, the mother got custody. She wound up marrying somebody else. So they grew up in a step family type situation. And the kid, uh, always felt like that they had to earn their worth, that they weren't loved for who they, who they were. And so they became earners. Uh, they became uh, very anxious. They didn't feel like they fit in in social situations. And so when I hear stories like that, or I hear stories of overt uh, physical and sexual abuse, and I can tell you, Heath, there's no shortage of those. And, and you've heard me talk about this before. I come home some days and I tell you and Karen and Haley and Sterling, and I'm quitting. You know, I, I, I'm emotionally drained. I can't take it anymore because one of the things that I really have an interest in is the opiate addicted pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. And I know that by the number 75% of those have been sexually abused. And I can tell you uh, that, that, that I think that number is closer to 90 or 95 or maybe even 99 because I've, I find very few women who aren't. Um, and then the real sad part about that are, are women who are sexually abused within their own nuclear family. And this isn't things, these, these aren't things people are comfortable talking about. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when I when I do the digging and I find out this history now, I have the second seven down on the pay line. Okay, so you've talked about the first one, which you kind of threw me off there a little bit. I thought when I was looking over our notes and I saw psycho, I thought psycho was going to be like I didn't think that was going to be the environment. I thought that was going to be your actual mental makeup, like what what was going on between your ears. That's what I thought, too. And But I think it's important to mention that, you know, we hear the word psych. We're really talking about environment, but but we can't forget people with mental illness. Okay. So, so if you have a risk, if you have another risk factor would be suffering from uh, acute or ongoing mental illness, such as anxiety, depression, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is actually an anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. Those are all things that we would think of along the psych side. And I can tell you, they all put patients at risk for developing addictive disease. So I want to I take a little bit of a sidebar here and, and tell you why this is important. So imagine me as a doctor sitting here and I'm going to use Sterling as my example. And Sterling comes into my office and, and he's a young guy and he's complaining, complaining of low back pain. And he's seen all the commercials about, you know, how, how we, you know, we, we do a poor job of treating pain and opioids or what he, what he, 
he needs in order to treat his pain. And this is real and it's affecting his life. And I'm getting ready to write him a prescription for this because I've been brainwashed by the appropriate folks. And I don't ask him any questions like I've just asked you to determine his risk of using, uh, of misusing the uh, prescribed opioid that I'm getting ready to give him, the pain pill I'm getting ready to give him. I don't ask him any of those questions. I just unleash this on him without tell, without going over any of that, defining what his risk is, or I don't even tell him about his risk of developing addiction and dependence to this drug. And he goes off and takes it for a month and comes back. And every time he stops taking it, he gets sick. So he's going into withdrawals. So now he's got to have it to live. And he's off to the races. So there's about a 40% chance that he'll be taking that prescription a year from now. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of things that come into play there. But the biggest thing that comes into play is on the behalf of the prescriber, not educated on addiction. Now, Sterling may very well need that pain pill. Hmm. What can I do in the office sitting right in front of him to ascertain his risk to possibly misuse his pain medication. It's easy. I don't have a lot of time, a 15 minutes in office visit. Sterling, tell me about your family history of substance abuse. If he has a positive family history of substance abuse, then the first seven is down on my pay line, right? Then we go to the next one. Absolutely. So Sterling, tell me what it was like growing up in your house. Well, Dr. Lloyd, I had a f- history of physical abuse. My father was uh, was a drinker and he was very abusive. I watched him, uh, you know, watched him hit my mother on numerous occasions. Okay, bingo. Right. There is physical and emotional abuse. Now I have the second seven on the pay line. Uh, now, my patient, Sterling, is at increased risk to misuse this substance that I'm getting ready to prescribe. Does that mean I don't prescribe it? No, I very well may need to. He have a, have a broken leg, right? And you need pain medicine for a broken leg. But what it does is it allows me to risk stratify him for his potential to misuse that drug. We risk stratify patients in every other disease I can think about. Oh, yeah. If we think somebody has a heart attack, we want to know, do they have diabetes, hypertension? Do they smoke? Do they have a family history? Do they have high cholesterol? If they do, then that's that chest pain is likely a heart attack based on their risk factors, Right. Same thing here. So I've looked at Sterling's biology. I've looked at the bio part. He's got a positive family history. I've looked at the psycho part. He's got that positive family history of trauma. And that brings us to our third seven. And our third seven is the social aspect of it. Bio, psycho, social. And he's all the social part means is the availability. What's out there? We don't have any more addiction by prevalence in the United States right now than we did right after the Civil War. We got more people, so there's more of them. But from a prevalence standpoint, per capita, per 100,000, basically the same, Heath. And, and, and simply our, our epidemics of addiction that we've went through from methamphetamine to cocaine, uh, to marijuana, to hallucinogenics like LSD, and then back to opioids and heroin and pain pills. It, those epidemics haven't been because we've suddenly got this onslaught of new people with addiction. We have just made things more socially available. So if I ask you this, Heath, I ask you, what's the most socially available thing out there? Pot. Uh, well, pot's one. Right? That's a good answer. It wasn't one I was counting on. What, what would be something for my generation to say more socially available? Um, okay. We'll get a little bit of alcohol. How about that? <laughs> right, right. I had to mouth it to you. So alcohol. So alcohol is the most socially acceptable and widespread thing out there. We're, you and I are doing this podcast right now from Johnson City. Less than a half a mile from where we're sitting right now, I can think of one, two, three, four, five places to legally buy alcohol within a half a mile of where we are. I'm 21 years old. I'm not in jail. I've got a valid ID and driver's license. I can go buy alcohol. So it's widely socially acceptable. So in my job, what drug do you think I see people addicted to the most? 
You got me stumped. I mean, I would, what Percocets, Oxycontin, painkillers, okay. opioids. So, so if you listen, if you listen to the news media and those things are a huge problem, we have an epidemic of it. You would absolutely say that. And you'd be wrong. About 60 to 65 percent of the people I see on a daily basis are addicted to alcohol. Mm. Why is it? It's socially and widely available. Okay, so that third seven coming down on the pay line is just the availability. So as we go forward in, in the in, in the coming episodes, as I break down each of these sevens, I'm going to really expand on this third seven and talk about uh, how we got into our current uh, crisis with regards to opioid pain medication and heroin as a result of our social mores around using these medications changed from the 1990s into the early 2000s. It's really interesting. And if you'd like a really clear background on that, um, uh, the books I mentioned earlier, Dope Sick, uh, American Pain, and Painkiller, give you a very clear picture uh, uh, of how that came about. But those are things that we're going to explore in crumbing episodes. So that is the biopsychosocial model. That is how I can use it in my daily interactions with my patients when I'm getting ready to prescribe a controlled substance. Because remember, we have other controlled substances that we prescribe other than opioid painkillers. The most common one that people would realize would be benzodiazepines like Xanax, Valium, and clonazepam. And how we can use that biopsychosocial model in evaluating our patients' risk to misuse those uh, medications. Okay, so we've got off on a tangent. You know, kind of let you kind of let you air some things out right there. We covered a lot of different topics. Put a nice, pretty bow on this for us, Heath. When we look at the biopsychosocial model, I want people to think of it as a slot machine. The first seven, the bio part, genetically at risk population. We need to know the family history. If you've got a positive family history for substance abuse, you're at risk. The psycho part, the second seven, what kind of environment were you raised in? What did you have childhood trauma? Did you have physical, sexual, emotional abuse? And last but not least, the social component, the third seven, is the availability. What is socially or widely available? And today it is uh, pain pills and cheap, high-grade, highly potent heroin uh, and uh, mixed with uh, fentanyl analogs. And so as I, as I think about this, Heath, as we go forward in our coming episodes, everything that we do from this point forward is going to be a play on this episode. We're going to come back and unpack this time and time again. Uh, I, I gave you the list of books uh, as references uh, to where a lot of this came from because I want you to know I'm not, not just making it up. But everything we do going forward is going to come back to this uh, in some form or another. That was Addiction in the Slot Machine, an introduction into the three-factor model of addiction. Join us next time as we talk about the first seven, biology. As always, check us out on our website at www.70x7.org. That's 70 spelled out, the letter X, number 7.org. Or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Addiction is treatable, treatment works, and people recover. We'll see you next time.